Welcome to the podcast. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for Your Daily Drive, the podcast where we put our article content in audio format so you can listen on the run. I just received a note, or Lucia received a note from Joanne. She is she has reminded us again that she listens to us as she is running along, or listen to, to me while she is running along the beach on Marco Island in Florida. I'm not sure if I could think of anything better than that, though I do not listen to my podcast because I wouldn't go across the street to hear myself teach. But it is good information, and to be able to run uh, in the sunny weather of Florida by the beach, listening to a Christian podcast, I don't know. That is pretty good. And so, uh, Joanne, thank you for that reminder. Today's podcast, I want to talk about something that is common to all of us, and that's why I titled the podcast, How to Tackle the Biggest Battle in Your Soul. This will apply to all of all of us because we, we all have these baked-in problems. We live in Adam, we're born in Adam, and God regenerates us, but we are not completely changed, and so we do struggle with issues. And, and so I have a question for you to lead off in this podcast. When things in your life turn dark and difficult, how do you usually respond to those circumstances? And I'm pretty sure that virtually every one of us, everybody listening to the podcast, can just think about in the last week or so when something negative, no matter how big or small it might have been, but when it came into your experience, how did you respond? Maybe you didn't say anything, but where did your thoughts go? How do you think about the difficult things in your life? When trouble comes, you will either experience guidance and protection from a biblical understanding and application of the fear of the Lord, or another kind of fear will come, a sinful fear, and it will complicate and command you, and it will command your circumstances The big idea that I want to talk about in this podcast is the fear of the Lord. I've heard about it all my Christian life, and so have you. Do you know what the fear of the Lord means? Could you stand up right now in a Sunday school class or before a small group and and give a a short two-minute explanation of what the fear of the Lord is? If you can't, then I really would encourage you, I strongly appeal to you to keep listening to this podcast because as I said, I said it this way, when trouble comes, you will either experience guidance and protection from a biblical understanding and application of the fear of the Lord, or a sinful fear will complicate and command you and your circumstances This fear of the Lord idea is not something that's talked about a lot, or at least it's not something that I hear a lot about, and that's why I believe it is imperative and important for us to have a sound understanding, not only so sound, but to the point that we can articulate it. We can talk about this. We know what the fear of the Lord is, but more importantly, it has a a practical commanding power over our lives, that it guides us rather than any other type of fear 
that there is. If you want to read this podcast, I would love for you to do that. I've got 2,000 plus words on our website, rickthomas.net, N-E-T dot And it's titled, How to Tackle the Biggest Battle in Your Soul. And you're welcome to read that, and you're welcome to share it with your with your best friend or anyone else for that matter. This is critical information. I have an infographic here as well. This infographic is actually a graphic that is in the book by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God Is Small. That is one of the transformative books that God used in my life to help me not just understand this idea of the fear of the Lord, but help me to understand how the control of other people can have so much power over my life. And so I emailed him many, many years ago, and I asked him if I could use this graphic, and he graciously said I could. Thank you, Ed. And so I have that graphic here, and I would encourage you to look at it if you have time to dive into the article that's on the website. I also have a 11-minute, 39-second video on self-reliance. It is an excellent articulation of the opposite response to the fear of the Lord. If you're not going to rely on the Lord, you have to rely on yourself, and that is a bad path for anybody to go down. And so I have a video here that would be well worth your time to view on self-reliance. And so all of that's here inside of this article. And if you have the time, I would encourage you to check it out. How to tackle the biggest battle in your soul. A person who does not fear the Lord will succumb to the temptation of disobedience, but not just disobedience, also hopelessness during times of trouble. When trouble comes and we don't have a hearty and healthy and biblical view of the fear of the Lord, there are two. there's a couple that's going to come walking down the street and they're going to take up their abode in your mind. And those two people, those two ideas are disobedience and hopelessness. I want to share with you 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'll start in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 24. But in 1 Samuel 13, 1 through 7, we see a vivid illustration of how a person can become disobedient and hopeless. And so I'm not going to read the entire text. I'm just going to share four verses with you from this passage. But if you want to, you can read 1 Samuel 13. You could read the preface, the run-up to it in 1 Samuel 12. But in 1 Samuel 12, 24, the Israelites were charged to fear the Lord, which was the only way for them to live well with God and others. In fact, if you were to take these four verses that I have outlined here in uh, this article, there'll be four points. One, the command. Two, the conflict. Three, the reaction. And then four, the result. And that's how your life and my life rolls out as well. God gives us a command of how we should live. We have the Bible. You can pick pretty much any verse, any passage from the Bible, but we learn how to live. There's our command book right there. There's the command. And then number two, well, inevitably, we will run into conflict. Now, the conflict will test us on how well we are doing with the command. And then number three will be the reaction, how we respond to the conflict. And then, of course, number four will be the result. 
And so, number one, point number one, the command, uh, Samuel, in 1 Samuel, the Israelites were charged to fear the Lord, which was the only way for them to live well with God and others. Let me read 1 Samuel 12, 24 for you so you can hear it. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. So there's the command. That's what I want you to do, to fear the Lord with all of your heart. He's done great things for you. And then after that, that's 1 Samuel 12, 24. Now we're rolling into 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse number 5. The Israelites began to experience conflict as the difficulties were surrounding them. Let me share 13.5 with you. Here's what the verse says. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. Have you ever had anyone muster to fight with you as the enemy encamps around you? 1 Samuel 13.5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 Horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and they encamped. Well, it's, it's important. Imagine if you didn't know the command to fear the Lord and you just lived in conflict. You just had the encamping of conflict around you all the time. That's the way the culture lives. They don't start at point number one, the command. They start at point number two, the conflict. We have point number one, the command, the fear of the Lord. And that's why it's so important that we want to know what it means to fear the Lord so that we can respond well to the conflict. And that's what point number three is, the, the reaction. Their response to their trouble was not to fear the Lord, but to become anxious about their circumstances as evidenced by their running and hiding. I read 13.5, where they encamped around them. Let me read 13.6, the very next verse. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. That was their reaction How do you react to the trouble when the conflict comes into your life? Are you adhering to the command to fear the Lord that stabilizes you through the conflict? Or are you reacting in another way like the Israelites did here in 1 Samuel 13, 6? The command, fear the Lord. The conflict, trouble has come and encamped around me. The reaction, They ran and they hid. Point number four, the result. Because of their wrong response to trouble, they went down a path of disobedience, which led to hopelessness and relational dysfunction. That's the next verse. That's verse number seven. Let me read it to you, 1 Samuel 13, 7. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, Saul was in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So there's the disobedience, and there's the hopelessness. They followed him, trembling. Their historical record portrays perfectly for us our two choices when trouble comes into our lives. Here they are. Choice number one, we can choose to fear the Lord, as Samuel charged the Israelites to do. 
choice number two, we can choose to fear our circumstances as the Israelites did. The title of the podcast is How to Tackle the Biggest Battle in Your Soul. You have two choices standing before you when trouble comes and encamps around you. You can choose to fear the Lord, as Samuel charged the Israelites to do, or you can choose to fear your circumstances as the Israelites did. Now, this truth that all of us must interact with brings us to the obvious question. What in the world does it mean to fear the Lord? If Samuel is saying to the Israelites, if Samuel is saying to you or to me that this is the command I want you to fear the Lord, then it is imperative that you know what it means to fear the Lord. Now, this is where this, is where this infographic here will really help you, and so I'm going to encourage you to, to get on this article on our website and look at this uh, infographic so that you can stand up in your Sunday school class or your small group or any person that you're talking to. You're sitting across from someone in a coffee shop, and their circumstances, they have encamped around them. And you want to say, well, what you need is a hearty biblical view of the fear of the Lord. More than likely, they're going to look at you bug-eyed because they're not sure what that means. Or they may have an idea of what it means, but they may not, probably will not be able uh, to functionally apply that, apply it practically in their lives. And so you need to understand what it means The fear of the Lord comprises of two essential facts. Fact one, fact two. Here's fact one, and it's a big one. God is a holy, omnipotent, reigning, and terrifying judge who condemns all humanity to hell. Fact two. God is a loving, approachable, Intreatable Father who has provided a means for individuals to experience rescue and restoration. Now, both of those facts must be held in unison, held in tandem. You can't err heavy on one or the other, but you must hold them in perfect balance. To live well, is to understand and rest in both of those truths. To hold one without the other leads to spiritual and relational dysfunction. Let me illustrate my point by examining the first person in the history of humanity who ever struggled with a misunderstanding of the fear of the Lord. You know his name. It's Adam. Adam knew fact one about God's holy judgment because the Lord was clear what would happen to him if he transgressed his law. If you want to read that, you can go to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, and the Lord could not have been clearer to Adam about what was going to happen if he transgressed his law. And that is why Adam was terrified after he broke God's law. Now, we observe this. We observe this in his behavior through his ill-conceived manipulations after he had sinned. He sounded like the Israelites in 2 Samuel that I just got through sharing those verses with you. They chose not to fear the Lord, and when trouble came, 
well, they disobeyed and they spiraled into hopelessness. Here are some of the ill-conceived manipulations after Adam had sinned. Number one, he hid his shame behind fig leaves. Number two, he ran from the Lord because he was afraid. Number three, he lied to God about what he did. Number four, he blamed his problems on his wife. These are some of the things that happen when a person refuses to fear the Lord. Adam was not a peaceful, satisfied, free, or restful human being because he did not know what it functionally meant to fear the Lord. He only knew what it was like to be afraid of God. But that is not a proper or full understanding of the fear of the Lord. Remember, fact number one, God is holy, omnipotent, reigning, and a terrifying judge who condemns all humanity to hell. Adam was erring on that fact alone, and because of that, he didn't know fact number two or didn't know it practically, that God is a loving, approachable, and treatable Father who has provided a means for individuals to experience rescue and restoration. And because of that, he contrived these manipulations because he was terrified. The person who only sees God as an arms folded, peering over the glasses, stern judge, does not know God the way he desires for us to know him. That person who thinks about God that way has a distorted understanding of the fear of the Lord. Adam was fast-tracking in the wrong direction. He was like the modern-day legalist who sees God more of a judge than a loving, soul-saving father. Adam and the legalists see the Lord as someone who's going to get them. It's a punitive relationship. They live under a cloud of, quote, bad things are just around the corner. They have a cynical, hope-killing perspective own life. But then there's another group of people who are the antithesis to the legalist. They are the folks who lean toward the love of God, fact number two, the loving God. But they ignore fact number one, the law. Typically, these people come from, ironically, legalistic backgrounds. They jump from fact one, God is a stern judge, to fact two, that God is a God of love and grace. It is difficult to talk to this second group about obedience, discipline, and other law-sounding things because no one has ever taught them the right perspective about the fear of the Lord. They do lean toward fact two, not fact one. They only had judgment in their past. Fear, condemnation, and obedience shoveled at them, which made them acutely aware that if they did not follow the rules, there would be punitive actions in return for their lack of adherence to communal protocols or even legitimate biblical morality. At some point, some of them fought back by jumping out of the legalistic ditch and into the grace ditch. I call this the grace mistake. It's a ditch that resists calls to holiness. Any attempt to talk to them about righteousness receives a reflective mantra of grace, 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 which is code for, quote, you can't speak to me about my lifestyle because you're judging me. I live in grace now. Unfortunately, judgment is not what you were doing, but it is what they were hearing. 
The frustrated former legalist has only one filter for holiness, and it is a grace-saturated one that is devoid of gospel-centered expectations, the grace mistake. The sweet spot for all of us is to believe in and engage with a holy God who expects us to live according to righteous standards while providing us a loving means to live that way. What Adam needed to know was that the same God who is a holy judge, fact one, is also a person who has provided the means for him to escape the damning judgments of sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God is not a God that we should run from because we're scared of him. That is not what the fear of God means. We should make a beeline to him because he is the only one who can deliver us, whether we're talking about salvation or sanctification. The healthiest perspective you could ever have about God is, one, to fully know that you are a condemned sinner, and number two, that he has provided a way for you to be rescued and restored. Here's the balance. God is a God of holy justice, and God is a God of holy love. This is how you define a healthy and biblical view of the fear of God. Living in the truth of God's holy justice and his holy love is what it means to fear the Lord biblically and adequately. And the more you understand this concept, the more you will move from terror, trembling, dread, to devotion, trust, and worship. The question is, what will you do? To reject a healthy view and adherence, a healthy view and an adherence to the fear of the Lord will leave you unable to benefit from your relationship with Him. If you are afraid of Him as Adam was, you cannot benefit the way that you should from the relationship. If you believe holiness does not matter, you will not benefit from the relationship. And so you cannot be afraid you won't benefit. And you cannot believe holiness doesn't matter. You cannot benefit. Now let me add to these ideas. Without his help, you are left with only one option. Rely on yourself or what we call self-reliance. You see, Samuel appealed to the Israelites to fear the Lord, which was the door through which they would have found great help. What did they do? They chose to rely on themselves. What will it be for you? Will you rely on the Lord? You can only do that if you have a right understanding and practice of the fear of the Lord. Or will you rely on yourself? Saul chose to reject the fear of the Lord as he relied on himself. This left him in a vulnerable, vulnerable position, which exposed his heart to doubt to fear, to hopelessness. The person who fears the Lord will experience peace even when circumstances are unfolding in less desirable ways. Another way of saying unfolding in less desirable ways is that trouble has encamped around you. 
like the story of the Israelites that I was reading earlier in 2 Samuel 13 communicates. Let me give you a warning here. There are times in our lives when the Lord allows circumstances to unfold in such a way so that we can see ourselves for who we are. That's what Paul was teaching the Corinthians as he appealed to them to not be ignorant of the negative things, the adverse things that were encamping, that were happening to him and his team. You can read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Listen to this passage and filter it through 2 Samuel. Imagine if this Saul in in 2 Corinthians, who is now Paul, and the Saul in Samuel, if the Saul in Samuel had responded like the Saul in 2 Corinthians, imagine if they were camping in camping around the Saul in Samuel, in 2 Samuel. Imagine Saul saying this, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction of the Philistines. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Wouldn't that be a much better response? Here's the next sentence. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Here's the last sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but to rely on God who raises the dead. The first Saul should have responded this way, and Samuel was uh, warning them that when trouble comes, this is what you need. Well, Paul understood. He understood what God was up to and why he was up to it. The Lord made things impossible for Paul. Listen to that statement again. The Lord made things impossible for Paul which was his call to examine himself as to who he was trusting. Sadly, when the test came for Paul, initially he was found to be a self-reliant man, but Paul repented. He learned how to rely on the Lord. Will you fear the Lord, which will guide you through your circumstances, or will you fear your circumstances, which will lead to disobedience and hopelessness? The negative things that happen to you will show you where you have placed your faith. When things became difficult for the Israelites, they ran and hid in caves and cisterns and tombs. They scattered. Adam had a similar response. Adam, Saul, and the Israelites took matters into their own hands because they were self-reliant people. The crux of the matter, and what is really at issue here, is between belief and unbelief. And that is why I titled the podcast, How to Tackle the Biggest Battle in Your Soul. And that is the crux of the matter. Will you trust? Will you believe the Lord, which will be evidenced by doing things His way? Or will you trust yourself self-reliance, which will be evidenced by doing things your way. Saul chose to reject the fear of the Lord as he relied on himself. The person who fears the Lord will experience peace even when circumstances are encamping around them in less desirable ways. Paul was like an acrobat swinging high above the stadium floor. I mean, Saul was like an acrobat swinging high above the stadium floor. 
while letting go of one bar, self-reliance, and reaching for the other one, God-reliance. It is in that moment between letting go of one thing and reaching for another that brings fear into our hearts. Biblical faith leads to authentic worship. Let me illustrate with another Bible story. It was a dark it was on a dark and stormy night when Christ asked Peter to stop trusting himself and to rely on him. Notice how Peter's faith in God as his deliverer led to personal and communal worship. You can read that passage in Matthew 14. Peter let go of the acrobatic bar. He stepped out of the boat, and he reached for another one. And the Lord saved him as he was going down. Will I get off the boat and walk with the Lord? What will happen if I leave what I know and step into the unknown on a dark and stormy night? What if I sink? Will God save me? Here's how that passage ended. Jesus said, Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. We all must learn to let go of our ways of doing things while reaching for a better way. Swinging from self-reliance to God-reliance can be a terrifying experience. If you are a Christian, you've already done this at least one time. You are a Christian. God saved you. You let go of Adam and you reached for Christ. Your sanctification is a continual letting go of your way of thinking about and doing things while practicing your faith in the Lord. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. God bless. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net rickthomas.net